What do the following dates and events have in common? The Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, the Mexican Revolution, the attack on Pearl Harbor, and last Saturday, February 4th. In every single situation, the U.S. military used its force to attack a foreign foe on U.S. soil. Or more accurately, from last, uh, this last Saturday, U.S. airspace. Uh, I'm speaking, of course, of the shot from the F-22 Raptor that took down the Chinese spy balloon just off the coast of South Carolina. Very few times have we used our power to defend ourselves from a foreign aggressor on our own soil. In fact, it happens so infrequently that when I asked in the first service when it had happened, I had you know, a bunch of people come, but it was all of these very discrete dates that some of them more than 50 years ago, almost 100 years ago, even beyond that, if any of you saw any of the videos from last week of that missile hitting the balloon and taking the balloon down, one of my favorites was actually shot at Myrtle Beach by some cadets from the Citadel, a military college in South Carolina. When the missile hit the balloon, all of a sudden they erupted in cheers and they started shouting, USA, USA. I thought, well, it's not exactly air-to-air -air combat, but that's cool. <laughs> Still get a bit of national pride seeing the power of the United States on display. Where do we see the power of the kingdom of God on display? Where is the arsenal of the kingdom of God? Last week, we saw how Jesus, when he healed people was enacting the reality of the kingdom of God, both when he healed Peter's mother-in-law as well as when he stood outside Peter's home that evening and healed all of those that came from Capernaum to bring their sick, to bring their demon-possessed to him. When he touched them, he showed them what the kingdom of God looked like. With every touch, healing touch of Jesus, they, they felt resurrection at least for a little while. They, they saw the reality of the new creation, at least for a little while. This morning, I want you to see how the ministry of Jesus, both his private prayers as well as his public preaching, I want you to see how the ministry of Jesus is the power of the kingdom. And then I want you to grapple with this. That power is not just in history. That power actually is available to you and me today. Because the power of the kingdom in the acts of prayer and preaching, those are the weapons of our warfare today. So we pick up the story of Mark, or excuse me, the story of Jesus in that early morning after a day spent preaching in the synagogues, 
uh, casting out a demon, going to Peter's house, healing his mother-in-law, healing all those people in Capernaum. Jesus probably got to bed super late. It had been a long day. And then verse 35 says that he got up while it was still dark to pray. And we often read of Jesus praying in the Gospels. He prayed right before he was baptized in Luke chapter 3. He prayed when he chose the 12 disciples to follow him in Luke chapter 6. He prayed when he miraculously fed the 5,000, Mark chapter 6. He prayed on the mountain where he was transfigured in Luke chapter 9. He prayed when he taught his disciples to pray, Matthew and in Luke. John 11, he prays at Lazarus' tomb. In all of the Gospels, we read how he prays in the garden of Gethsemane before he is arrested. He prays on the cross, Mark 15 tells us, and he even prays after his resurrection when he meets up with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. The prayers of Jesus give us, I think, an interesting insight into the purpose of prayer. Maybe some of you, when you were a young Christian or you've struggled with praying and someone has come with that acronym, A-C-T-S, ACTS, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. And they've said, hey, try to structure your prayers around those four big ideas. Well, we see something similar in the prayers of Jesus. His prayers are full of adoration. They're full of love for his Father, devotion to God. So A is covered. Now, Jesus doesn't have anything to see, confess of, right? Because he is sinless. And yet, he asks for forgiveness on behalf of others. You can think especially of when he was on the cross, and he prays that God would forgive them, for they know not what they do. Acts, adoration, confession. What about thanksgiving? Well, his prayers are full of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving to God for the things that he has done in the world, the things that he has shown him, the things that he is showing other people through his own ministry. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving. What about supplication? He asks his father to do things. He asks his father to do things for him. He asks his father to do things for his disciples. And these supplications are not perfunctory. Instead, it's an example of the son submitting to the father's will so that the work of God would be done on earth. Prayer is important enough to Jesus that in verse 35, he is willing to go even to a desolate place to pray. Some commentators point out that this is the same word that we use to translate wilderness when Jesus is propelled into the wilderness where he is going to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. He goes to the place of his warfare. He goes to a place where there are no other resources available to him where he is forced, not just spiritually, but also physically, to depend on God alone. Now, there are plenty of instances in the Bible where Jesus prays on the go. Don't you and I have those kinds of prayers as well? Prayer in the car, prayer at work, a quick prayer at the table. 
But he also knows that there are times when he needs to pull away from everything and everyone to spend time with his father. As the old saying goes, he was too busy not to pray. And so he prays here in verse 35. We get a sense of the power of prayer in Jesus' life when we see how he responds to Peter's interruption in verse 36. Look at verse 36 again with me. And Simon, again, that's Peter, and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Don't miss that veiled rebuke. Everyone's looking at you, Jesus. Why did you leave? Where do you think you're going? The action is back in Capernaum. The people have started queuing up. It's time to get back to work. How does Jesus respond? Verse 38. Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. No, Peter. My job isn't to go back and heal the masses. My job is yet in front of me. It's to preach the good news of the kingdom. Now, in Mark 1, we don't know what Jesus prayed. Many of his prayers are written down for us, or at least the big themes of his prayers, because one of the ways that you would traditionally pray at that time in that culture is out loud. And so anyone who was an eyewitness to Jesus' prayer would write down what he prays about. Well, this morning, he doesn't have anybody around him, so we don't know exactly what he prayed about, but it's obvious that his prayers gave him a sense of clarity and direction for his future ministry. See, no matter how successful he has already been, no matter how insistent his disciples are, no matter how needy the crowds may be, there is only one person who can direct the footsteps of Christ. Jesus has heard from his Father. His calling is to preach. That is why I came out, Jesus says. Come out of where? Came out of Nazareth, of course. Came out here of Capernaum. Friends, don't miss this. This is why I came out. He came out of heaven to do this. He was sent forth to proclaim the good news that God had seen the suffering of his people. And that God was at work to finally and forever put right what we had turned so terribly wrong in the world, that is why I came out. We don't know exactly what Jesus prayed about. We also don't know exactly what he preached about. But verse 39 tells us that he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And we have a little bit of a clue here, right? If he's preaching in their synagogues, we need to go back and find out what does synagogue worship look like? Does that give us an idea of what Jesus was doing? We know that the synagogues were similar in some ways to our churches. They had a liturgy, a liturgy that included prayers and readings and a benediction. 
But the main focus of time spent in the synagogue, the main focus was on teaching. There would normally be a reading from the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and then there would be a reading from the prophets, and then the rabbi would give a sermon. So if Jesus is preaching in the synagogues, he is tying together what we now understand as the Old Testament, the books of Moses and the prophets, he's tying those things together and his preaching would have been thoroughly grounded in those texts. In fact, we have some clues as to how that looked. If you turn in your Bibles, maybe later today, you have time this afternoon, take a look at Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, you get a flavor of how Jesus ties together the books of Moses and the prophets. In Luke chapter 24, verse 27, he's walking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And what does it say? Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. They got their own mini synagogue sermon right there on the road to Emmaus. Or we can turn to Luke chapter 4, verse 16 when Jesus is preaching in a synagogue in Nazareth, and he reads from Isaiah, Isaiah 61. And then he closes the scroll and he says, this has been fulfilled in me. Now, do you remember what happened after he said that? That was the teaching that nearly cost him his life. That was the teaching that ultimately would send him to the cross. Friends, think about this for a second. If Jesus had merely encouraged rebellion against Caesar, he would have been hailed as a national hero. He would have been in high demand to make the synagogue circuit and preach his stump speech. If he had suggested overthrowing the power and the corruption of the Herodians and the Sadducees, he would have been applauded as a man of the people. If he had simply called out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, if he had offered a different moral message, he would have been hailed and followed as a great rabbi. But when he turns the people's eyes away from their institutions, away from their traditions, away from their culture, away from their doctrines. And when he says that the kingdom of God had come in and through him, and that they could only be right with God if they were right with him, and that he himself was God, that's a threat to be destroyed. That was the power that had to be stopped. Friends, the power of prayer and preaching, they are still the weapons of our warfare today. Think about this. Think about all of the places that we tend to look for power. Here in the U.S., of course, we tend to look for power and our ability to participate in the political process. And that's a good and godly calling. But what about a believer who doesn't live in a place where they can participate in a political process? Is their power constrained? 
Is the kingdom of God somehow less in that country than it is here? Of course not. Just to ask the question answers it. This power is on display and it is effective whether it is in the first century, the 12th century, or the 21st century. It is effective in Austin. It is effective with our friend Bryce in Bogota. It is effective in Istanbul. It is effective in Kigali. It is effective wherever it is unleashed around the world. This power is also spiritual. And sometimes that's what causes us to denigrate it. We want something that's more practical. We want something that's more tangible. Something that I can actually see at work in my culture. Friends, we're not looking for a strong man to bend the will of our neighbors. Instead, we want to preach the gospel to them so that they bend the knee to Jesus. This power is effective because it goes for our hearts, all of our hearts. Both those of us who have already bowed the knee to King Jesus and yet still struggle to live in submission to him, as well as our friends and neighbors, our family members who haven't yet acknowledged his kingship. Friends, this power is effective. Not just because we make it effective. This power is effective because these are the tools that Jesus used. They were his means to bring about the kingdom. And so when we share in them, we are doing the same things that he did. We are walking in his steps. We are participating in his power. This is why prayer and preaching and the means of grace that Christ instituted are at the heart of the identity of the church, at the heart of the church's practice. We don't do these things just because they're ancient rites. We do these things because we believe that through them the power of God is on display. Now, I think that we face two temptations today when it comes to prayer and preaching. Two temptations that, that may cause us to turn away from this power, and we're going to finish with this. I think first we face the temptation to despair. To despair because we see our own frailty. We see our own failure in this power. Maybe when you heard me read this passage or when you saw it listed in the email that went out earlier this week, maybe you got a little worried. A sermon about prayer. Oh great, all I need is another thing to feel guilty about on a Sunday. How many of us, if I asked... If you feel good about your prayer life, if you feel like that's something that's really working for you, how many of you would raise your hand and say, oh man, there is no room for improvement in my prayer life. This, I've got nailed. Friends, what I want you to see is that even when you are weak, this power is still strong. Jesus is not just the God that we worship. He is also the God with whom we worship. Jesus prays just like you and I are called to pray. And our prayer 
is only possible because of the communion that the Son has with the Father. A communion that continues even today as Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, Romans 8 says. Because Jesus communed with His Father perfectly, our imperfect prayers are perfected. Christ, our mediator, He transforms our inadequate prayers and He makes them powerful. So don't despise your praying. Don't feel like your praying isn't important enough or that you struggle with your praying. That power is at work in and through you to see the kingdom brought about because of your mediator. The second temptation is maybe we long for something that seems more powerful. We long for something that that works in today's atmosphere. I mean, seriously, Eric, prayer and and preaching, I mean, maybe that worked before we were like just consumed by everything that's happening around us. Maybe it worked for Jesus, but it certainly can't work today. That can't be where we put our hope. Don't you know how dangerous our culture is? I mean, our children are at risk. Our traditions are at risk. We are at risk, and you want us to put our trust in prayer and preaching? It's just words, Eric. Are there power in words? Many years ago, Ernest Hemingway wrote a short story called The Capital of the World. And in that story, he briefly mentions a newspaper advertisement that a father, desperate to find his son, places in a Madrid newspaper. Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana noon Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. When the day arrived, More than 800 young men named Paco (laughs) had packed the hotel hoping to find forgiveness and reconciliation. Friends, those words of hope were powerful enough to gather 800 young men. But only the gospel's words can affect the change that we need. The change in us, the change in our family and friends, yes, even the change in our culture, the change in our society. And that's why, that's why the gospel, the heart of Jesus' own preaching, that's why the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Let's pray. Father, we long to see that power at work in us. And with one hand, we hold on to it 
and yet with the other we grasp for other power, for other hopes, for other places to put our confidence. Father, give us confidence in the means that you have promised to use, not in our good ideas. Give us confidence that in and through them, Jesus is at work, building his kingdom, a kingdom that will prevail over the gates of hell, a kingdom that will fill the earth. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.